holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Christ Jesus, in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in all my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked not only in the present age but also in the one to come and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills everything in every way thanks Tamsin um Tim's just going to come up and I'm going to pray for him. Father, thank you for bringing us here this afternoon. Thank you for Tim and for his preparation. And Father, thank you for your word. Father, we just pray that you will speak um, by your spirit through Tim this afternoon. And um, Lord, show us each more of yourself and help us to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Meg. Um, <clears throat> I'm just going to pray. Is that all right? Because I feel really grim. And I think it's good to pray in those moments. So, um, you know, we've been on this brilliant men's weekend away and uh, you know a lot of it's been about overcoming and and battling through the kind of challenges that come and it felt really powerful um 
and you know, we were talking about how things can assault you and how we're in, a, we're in warfare and the enemy wants to kind of really rattle our cages and kind of diminish us individually and diminish the church and kind of the culture that we're part of. And I kind of felt like doing this series in Ephesians was going to be really, really important. And if you know, kind of Ephesians 6 at the end talks about the armor of God. I'm sure you've all seen a million sermons with people dressed as soldiers. You know, there's a battle. That's what Paul's saying. And we kind of really engaged on this weekend in warfare in a really good way, you know, focused on Christ. And I think this, this book of Ephesians kind of feel is going to be important for us as a church. And so I kind of felt um, quite inspired uh, to share what God was kind of, in, kind of calling us to and um, kind of uh, engaging in that. But it's a tough battle tonight. Um, practical reasons. Uh, with PA and bits like that, but it feels like there's kind of like a big swirling cloud in my head. And I feel like what God wants to say to us is quite important, so I don't want to get lost in that. Is that okay if I take a moment just to pray? Jesus, uh, we declare you Lord, and we're here to obey you. And right now I want to run home. Uh, But Jesus, that's not what you want. You want us to stand, and after the battle's been fought, to stand. And Jesus, I declare you as Lord of this place, Lord of this church, Lord of my heart, Lord of the people in this building, and the battle belongs to you, Jesus. Lord, you say fear not. Lord, I'm not afraid. But where we're weary or tired or where we're just, um, where the enemy comes and roars, Jesus, I thank you that you're the Lion of Judah and you roar back a lot louder and you're roaring us. Lord, is for these days to see your kingdom come in our city. So Jesus, we make our stand. We, can, we, we, we repent, we turn away from the things that kind of hold us back from you. And we look to you and we resist the devil. Lord, we turn to you, we resist the devil. So Father, I want to pray as we look at your word now. <clears throat> Lord, I pray these wouldn't just be words of history. I pray they wouldn't just be words that are interesting, but I pray they'd be words that go right to our core of who we are and what we're called to be in these days, Lord. And all the things that we carry, Lord, joys and burdens, we just kind of lay them at your feet, Jesus, and say, have your way here. So we kind of focus on you and we center on you, Jesus, and ask for you to surround us now by your angels, your ministering angels. Lord, open our hearts to hear what it is you want to say. Lord, give us clarity. Lord, we speak against confusion, against fatigue. And we speak Jesus' life amongst us. Lord, your words of life, would you come, Lord, and empower us and encircle us now in your name, Jesus. Amen. So we're looking at uh, the book of Ephesians, and um, I'm starting tonight in Ephesians 1. And, um, you know, there's so much in Ephesians. There's so much great stuff here. There's Ephesus, a few, kind of just a picture of it. And uh, we're going to kind of, I'm going to give you a bit of overview of it, of, of Ephesians. You know, what, what's the context for it? Because we can read books in the Bible and we kind of just, they may be really, really super familiar to us, like bits of Ephesians, no doubt, are really familiar to us. But the context of the letter, I think, is really important to Ephesians. Uh, we've just heard the first chapter. We're going to look at it in, in various different ways. He begins like this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. He's writing to the church in Ephesus. Paul's writing this letter 
to kind of the brethren there. So I'm going to give you an introdu introduction tonight, uh, which will interest some of you and bore the pants off others, possibly. Uh, and then we're going to just very, I'm going to very briefly look at chapter one, but um, probably not as, not as kind of in detail as the other chapters that will be looked in later, otherwise we'll be here all night. But I just want to share a few things and what I felt God say to say. So the book, the book of um, Ephesians is one of Paul's letters written to these new believers in this place called Ephesus. Um, according to Acts, and I'm going to read a bit from it later on, Paul spent more than two years in Ephesus, kind of church planting, building up the church. He lived in this place, and he got really, I think, emotionally attached to the church, the believers there. He saw them growing, and when you understand the context of Ephesus, which I'm going to explain because I think it's really important, you, you understand why his heart goes out to these guys. There's lots of themes in the book of Ephesians, but in some ways, the heart of it is what Jesus has done, the redemptive work of Jesus, and the resulting call, the purpose, and the nature of the church. It's all about Jesus and his bride, Jesus and you, and who you are in Jesus and what that means for the world. The church... Um, in Ephesians, we, 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 we know that Paul's writing this letter from, from prison, probably house arrest, probably in Rome. So it's probably in AD 62 that he's writing this letter. He refers to being in prison in the book of Ephesians three times, Ephesians 3.1, 4.1, and 6.20. And he kind of talks about being a prisoner in, the chain, in chains, writing his letter from kind of this, this confinement. So he's probably writing to the, to the Ephesians while he's in Rome. Um, and, and, you know, some letters are written because there's a specific problem that he needs to address, a piece of heresy. Or a, you know, but Ephesians is a little bit different. Perhaps there's no particular provoking cause for him to write to them. But he, wants, he clearly wants them to know that how he's doing while he's in prison, that he's okay. And, and, and obviously, because he's in prison, he's got time on his hands. And he's obviously thinking about them. You know, when we have space and time alone, we often think about our loved ones. And I think he's thinking about the church in Ephesus the, the kind of circumstances and the challenges that they face, and he wants to write them a letter of encouragement and instruction. There were challenges, no doubt, in Ephesus. I can talk about it, and I'm going to show you some pictures in a minute of Ephesus. Um, there were Gentiles, lots of non-Jewish people who were living there, who had kind of come to faith, and in some ways they probably felt, some of them, you know, it's, it's thought felt a bit second-class citizens compared to the, the Jewish Christians. And there's kind of misunderstanding and kind of judgments about the different classes of Christians, the, the, the kind of new Gentile believers. And, and this letter is intended to draw together, to help understanding, to help their discipleship, to help this understand who they were together um, as church. And, and therefore, I think it's really helpful for us as we think about, well, who are we as church, as we're seeking to grow and mature in an incredibly challenging culture? And that's the really interesting thing about Ephesus, is the culture and the city that's there. This, this letter uh, to Ephesians can be looked at in three ways. I mean, some people split it into three segments, the calling, the conduct, and, and conflict. The calling of a believer, it's kind of chapters one to three. The conduct, the way believers kind of leave, should li 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 live their lives, that's chapters four. Um, to chapter 6, verse 9, and then the conflict facing a believer. We already started talking about conflict, haven't we? Chapter 6, verse 10 through the end of the letter. So the calling, the conduct, and the conflict facing believers. What we're going to do 
we're going to do it um, over a period of um, six weeks. If you hit next slide, thanks, Serena. We're going to do six services, and we're going to look at the six chapters, um, one chapter a week. It'd be really great if you get a chance to read the chapter as we're kind of journeying through. So today we're thinking about being chosen in Christ. Then we're going to look at alive in Christ, power in Christ, life in Christ, wisdom in Christ, and strong, being strength in Christ. So that's kind of just there up there, just so you know what's going on. So during the New Testament times, when Paul's writing, Ephesus was thought to be a, a different kind of art. Um, archaeologists and historians have different views, but about 250,000 people, about a quarter of a million people. This was not a small town. This is a massive sort of center and had the reputation for being perhaps the richest city in the world at this sort of time in that area, definitely, and was a kind of real trendsetter city. You need to understand that, that Ephesus was New York, you know, Paris, Rome of its day. That was the perception of it. Um, and you get an idea of how important it was, how decadent it was, too. Um, if you look at the next slide, you might not know where it is. I didn't know where it, where it is. Oh, no, next one. Oh, maybe I didn't put it on. Oh, there it is. Okay, so Ephesus. Who knows what country Ephesus is in? I know some of you do. Turkey. Yeah, it's in Turkey. Um, so over here on the right, you can see there's the bottom of the boot of Italy. And then you get Greece going across Athens and Corinth. And then you go across, and Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. Um, Sarah and I and the family had the amazing privilege of kind of, of going there this, um, this summer. And uh, we went with my parents and we did a tour of Ephesus. And, you know, I knew there were Roman remains there. And you kind of think, I wonder, <laughs> I wonder what it's going to be like. You know, a few little Roman remains when you go and see kind of villas in England. This place is incredible. I mean, um, stick, if you pop the next slide on, Serena, thanks. I don't know what the next slide is, but it's probably going to be very interesting. You know, there are, there are, it's a street. Um, there are streets, and Ephesus was crazy. I mean, it was gas, there were oil lamps lit at night across the whole city. The kind of, the Rome, the bars were everywhere. Um, it was shops, a massive precinct. It was right on the coast, on the Aegean, and wealth flowed into Ephesus. It was a key port in the Roman province of Asia and was a center of real learning, um, positioned lots, near lots of key routes right across Asia Minor. And the geography meant that it provided a key link for the whole Roman world between Asia, Africa, the Western provinces. So loads of money flowed through. Uh, we went to see some of the kind of the, the houses that remain with these incredible paintings and mosaics and um, the resources that were there were incredible. Yes, there it is. This is the library. Uh, you know, it's not just a sort of few bits of stone standing on each other. It's, this is, the wealth and the stature of this place was incredible. Um, it was also known as a center of culture and arts. Um, it was often, at the time of Paul, it was called the greatest emporium in the province of Asia Minor. You could go there to buy anything. The markets, the streets were kind of vast. Hit the next one, Serena. Um, it also had a kind of massive theatre, which you can still see is there. It was really hot that day. Sarah particularly asked me not to include any photos of her as we were standing sweating, you know, in 40-degree heat. Um, this theatre, they reckon, could hold about 25,000 people. Um, it was used for entertainment. It was used for religious purposes, plays, drama, pagan festivals, sacrifices, processions. But it was also um, a centre for religious worship. The next one you had up there, Serena all these different gods. Anyone know what that god is? Nike, very good. And you can tell it's Nike, because look, there's the, there's the tick. And genuinely, that is where, that's where they got the tick from, for Nike. So I put it on to help you. It, they didn't paint it on. Um, 
so Nike and all of the other gods, I mean, there were temples everywhere, uh, incredible amount of temples. It was a center for religious worship and idolatry. It was also known as a key center for magic, sorcery, witchcraft, um, and there was a major influence kind of in the whole of, the, of, of emperor worship there. It was a center for emperor worship. Um, there were kind of temples built for the emperors there that people come from all over the world to see. Um, and those are the toilets. Just thought that would be helpful to show you. You thought Glastonbury was bad. Um, but what's really amazing to me um, is, and we'll put, look at some more pictures a bit later on, is that the gospel of Christ found root in this place, firmly planted in a city that had become such a center for pagan worship. Um, the Roman god, goddess Artemis, also known as Diana, she kind of, it, the, the temple that was there it was twice the size of the Parthenon, if you know where that is in, in, in Athens, uh, and was, was one of the seven wonders of the world. And people came from everywhere across the known world to come and worship this. It was a, an incredible thing. Um, in fact, also, interestingly, Artemis, the temple there for Artemis became the world's largest bank at the time. So you can imagine the money in this city, money coming in, all the temple, the temple prostitution, the shops, the wealth, the trading, the Roman kind of, you could just saw the lavishness of the houses. That was the library, the front of the library you saw there. It, knowledge, wisdom, stature, class, culture, everything coming through the seaports. Um, it talks about Acts, and I'm going to read it in a minute, in, in Acts 19. This temple to Artemis, this m incredible, enormous temple, um, Acts 19 was, t tells us that, it was th that within the heart of this temple, there was um, said to be a, a, a stone that had fallen from the sky, some artifact, I guess, was probably a meteor. And it was all inscribed with all this symbolic kind of language. And then it was part of the worship there, and people traveled from all over, and there were loads of books and manuscripts written about it, trying to decipher it, and kind of a lot of magic around it. And it was all, it all got tied up in this kind of really mystic, powerful, wealthy, rich religion, mysticism, sexuality, pagan worship. And it was a really, probably a bustling, thriving place full of life, but kind of weirdness as well. And this is the context that Paul arrives into. At this time, Artemis was probably the, the most worshipped deity in Asia. So this wasn't like a few little temples around. It was like people flocking from all over the entire Roman world. And as I said, it was, it was a known center for sorcery, divination, witchcraft as well. So, okay, why am I going on all about this history? Well, I just think it's really interesting that this really pagan, this really anti-Christian context, this wealth and richness and people there traveling to see the sights and soak up the sun and, you know, enjoy all the, all the lavish luxury that Ephesus had to offer doesn't sound that different from Bath. Global tourism, money, wealth, luxury, best hotels in the world, loads of places to go and worship, Artemis, Apple Shop in Southgate. It's very similar. All of these things, it's there. It's not that different. And we think, oh, the Christian voice in this culture, it's so hard. How, how can anyone look to Jesus? It's really important to understand the culture of Ephesus that Paul arrives into, particularly with all the magic and the occult stuff that's going on. 
and I'm going to read you Acts 19 in a second. It's important because it helps explain Paul's emphasis on the power of God over all heavenly authorities and on Christ's triumphant rule as head of the church and head over all things in this age and the age to come. Because in Ephesus, money was God, sexuality was God, you know, the, the religion was, was God, and, and all of that wealth and luxury, it shouted so loudly, and, then, and Paul comes in with the gospel, and he says, no, these things might be loud, and they, they might think they have true authority, but Jesus is Lord over all. These idols are nothing they might be really big and impressive and people would come and marvel at this temple because it was the biggest thing that anyone had ever seen in the world, but actually, Jesus is over all things. That's the context into which Paul is found. And it's the context that he's writing to this church because, you know, they were in the midst of all this still. The church had been planted and they were seeking to be heard and seeking to be transformative and Paul writes to them. I want to... You know, I just want to read you the passage in, in Acts 19 because it helps us understand the context. So if you've got a Bible, I'm just going to, and I know it takes a moment, but let's just look at it because it is fascinating. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we hadn't even heard there was a Holy Spirit. It's fascinating, isn't it? There's some people there who are clearly, somehow God has captured them. God has caught their attention. In amongst all these other gods, there's something that the heart of one or two people have been captured by God. Maybe they've heard stuff. Maybe the rumors of this Jesus have kind of got to them. Some people have traveled through the ports. Maybe they've met a few Christians. And, and there's something attractive about Jesus that makes them go, this is different, we want it. But no one's explained to them about the Holy Spirit. I think that's often true for a lot of churches, sadly, as well. So Paul asked them, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, well, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that's Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. They fully enter into faith in Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So God does something. It's like something's kindled. On this men's weekend away, we were doing fire starting because that's the thing that men do. Love making fires. And, you know, we, Nathan, who's this kind of like, um, he's like a cross between sort of um, Ray Mears and um, Bear, Bear Grylls. And he's, you know, t with his sharp knife and he's teaching us how to kind of like get flints going. And you should have seen the delight in, you know, 15 blokes huddled around in the damp earth, making bits of wood catch fire, like, oh, fire, oh, sort of back to our Neanderthal roots. But it's amazing when you think this thing suddenly goes, I think that's what happened in this household. The Holy Spirit started something beautiful when Paul placed his hands on them. There were about 12 in all. Then Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months. You know, this... This center, some of these pictures hit Paul right in the middle in the synagogue would have been there preaching about Jesus, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He tries the synagogue, doesn't really work. He went, tried the kind of religious Jewish center, didn't get anywhere. So he took the disciples with him. They had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This is like a public debating thing. I mean, the Greeks and the Romans, they love debating. So he would go in and go, right, I'll talk about Jesus. He went to an open mic night, 
said, you know, you want to talk, you've been listening to some TED Talks, I'm going to tell you something really interesting, let me tell you about Jesus. And something begins to bubble away in this city. People start hearing about it. This went on for two years. I mean, he didn't just try it a couple of times on open mic night and, you know, only four people turned up and a dog and he thought, this is a bit of hard work, let's give up. He perseveres for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. I mean, that's quite impressive. There wasn't the internet. He didn't put go on YouTube, but everyone heard. And then God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. See, this city believed in supernatural power and they started seeing it. God doing ridiculous miracles through handkerchiefs, I'm sure they were washed, um, that they used. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. I think this is quite funny. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief, chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil, the evil spirit answered him, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man who had the evil spirit jumped on him and overpowered them all, and he gave him such a beating, they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. I shouldn't laugh, really, but it is quite funny, isn't it? When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord was held in high honor. This is what I want to say. You know, crazy things were going on that people didn't understand, and people, but they knew that something was real was going on, and it began to shake them, and not necessarily in a good way. They got scared. They got scared because these Christians seemed to have some sort of power that all these witches and warlocks and priestesses and priests in all the temples who, you know, cut themselves and give, do all sorts of... They, they, these Christians had some sort of different power, a real power, and it began to go through the whole area so that the name of Jesus was held in high honor. Man, wouldn't you like that in our city? Instead of when you walk through town, it really grates on me when I hear someone go, oh, Jesus. I just think, what? It's warfare, isn't it? People don't go, oh, Buddha. What's going on? Why do they say Jesus? Well, because he is Lord. And because it's warfare. The enemy hates his name, and so people take it in vain. But can you imagine that transforming that no one would dare say the name Jesus because there's power in the name of Jesus. That's what I long for in our city. That his name is held in esteem. Even though that those that don't yet know him, or you don't mess with that Jesus, he's real. There's something that these Christians have. I'm attracted to it, but I'm a bit scared because I don't understand it fully. And then it says this, Many of those who believe now came and openly confessed what they had done. So they follow this Jesus and something inside them goes, you know what, I've lived this life of debauchery and luxury and wealth and witchcraft and idolatry and you know what, I, I want to turn away from all that. And I'm willing to acknowledge that was my past. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their souls, scrolls together, their scrolls, their books were told in other things and burned them publicly when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely. One drachma was a, was a day's wages. 50,000 drachmas is 137 years worth of wages up in smoke. I mean, these are like, you know, these are, these are people burning their wealth, their riches, their precious secret books because they've been so captivated by Jesus. Can we imagine that happening in our city? I pray so. I long so. I long for that to happen. The church, this 
fledgling little church under Paul didn't just accept the status quo, well, we're living in an idolatrous nation and an idolatrous city and there's lots of wealth and they won't really want to know about Jesus because they've got hot tubs and they've got, you know, um, houses in the south of France and, you know, they go to luxury hotels and, and, you know, they worship at the Temple of Apple and they have, and the list can go on and on and on. No, 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 they decided that the status quo no, we're going to, our voice is going to be heard in this city amongst all of this idolatry, amongst all of this witchcraft. They didn't just moan about the culture they were part of. They dared to believe that maybe they could begin to transform it. And so they preached the gospel in little ways and big ways. And God's spirit began a work in them. Faith in action. I found this when I was doing some research the last few days. A Christian inscription at Ephesus suggests why so little remains of that enormous temple, that temple that would last forever for Artemis, the biggest thing, the seven wonder of the world. It's not there anymore. You can't see anything. Well, maybe part of why it's not there was that this Christian inscription was found at Ephesus. And it just says this, destroying the delusive image of the demon Artemis, Demius, that's the person, has erected this symbol of truth, the God that drives away idols and the cross of priests, deathless and victorious sign of Christ. And for me, the most moving thing about going through Ephesus, well, I mean, the archaeology was stunning, and, you know, I'm a bit of a geek and a Time Team fan, and, and you know, me and Sam were like, oh, wow, oh, look at this, and Joe's like, look at the toilets. Um, and, you know, but, but the thing that I found so moving, as we traveled through the remains of the city, a lot's left, we regularly found things like this amongst all of the pagan icons, just as a, pillars and a temple, and the next one zooms in. You suddenly see a cross carved into stone and then go for the next one. We walked into this building. Most people missed it. As I walked into this, this, this house, I just looked up and there was a cross carved into the doorway. And you begin to see signs of the gospel literally being etched into the stonework where previously it had all been images of Nike and Artemis and all these thousands of gods that the Romans and the Greeks worshipped. And, and the visible symbols of Christianity begin to literally get into the stonework. There was a, a place where the first church, Sarah heard someone talking about it, the first church began in Ephesus, and there's a fish scratched into the floor to mark where the, first, where the church was and where they used to meet. Ephesus began to change little by little, but just bands of brothers and sisters praying, sharing Jesus, pulling down idols, spiritually and physically. This chap, Demius, we don't know who he was, but he was part of destroying these idols and erecting symbols of truth, like crosses like that. It's beautiful, I love it. Paul knew why he was there. He was there to minister, not to sightsee, not to enjoy the architecture, not to go and enjoy all the Roman bars. He was there to make a difference, to be part of its transformed history. And I imagine it was really tough. I don't think it was easy. There's lots of evidence that Paul was, during his time in Ephesus, was put in prison while he was there, probably for being outrageous. It wasn't a comfortable environment to be part of, but I think Paul knew that where he went, he brought heaven with him. The atmosphere, we might think, oh, but it was dark, all of that idol worship, all of those kind of pagan kind of symbols, all of the heaviness. I bet it was dark, and it probably was. But Paul thought, where I go, Jesus goes in me and with me. So I'm going to be transforming environments, transforming culture by heaven's presence with me. And having been there and seen the, the church birthed and nurtured, Paul now wants to write to them. He's left Ephesus, he's left this fledgling little pioneering church, 
and he wants to commend them, he wants to encourage them, he wants to inspire them and honor their faithfulness and, and help them strive to see Jesus lifted up in their own lives and in their own communities, kind of together and in their city, in and for their city. It's like he's saying, you need to know what you have in Christ. You need to know who you are in Christ. You might feel like the culture around you is swallowing you up and coming against you and pressing in and it all seems so hopeless and your, your voice seems so little. But you individually and you corporately as a band of brothers and sisters, as one church together, one people, are a glorious bride that makes the enemy tremble and that makes all of those enormous temples shake the demonic powers behind them because Jesus is in you. You're not weak and insignificant. You're magnificent because you've got Christ's full power in you. Verse 19 and 20. That power is the same, Paul says, as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Almighty. I mean, let's be honest. Sometimes as Christians, we feel weak, right? I mean, I stood up tonight and I just thought, I want to go home, give up being a vicar. I'm done. <laughs> you know, we have moments, it's good to be honest. We have, maybe it's just me. Maybe you're like, no, I, I saw as a Christian all the time. I don't know what you're talking about. We have moments where we feel like, oh, I'm done, I'm beaten, I'm exhausted. And sometimes it's physical, and the enemy gets on the back of our physical tiredness or fatigue or sickness. But Paul says, you may feel that, and I understand that. But the truth is that the same power that got Christ out of the grave is at work in you. Say amen. <laughs> That's good. You all sound like you believe that. That's quite good. It's true. Paul's saying it's true. There's power. Power in the name of Jesus and power in you. That's what's available for you. He's trying to write and encourage the church in Ephesus. And man, we need to hear it in our own days as well. Speaking of Jesus, verse 22, 23, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. I mean, we need to understand the context of this. This is in a city where idolatry is like everywhere. I mean, you come out your front door and there's the biggest temple in Asia for kind of the biggest cult worship in the world. And Paul's going, yeah, Jesus is over all things. What, over this thing, these, and you walk through the city and there's, there's temples and idols and all the, all the gods, I mean, they're everywhere, and Paul's going, yeah, but Jesus is over them all. You might feel you're under them, you might feel that they rule your life, you might feel that, you know, everyone worships them and you feel like your little squeaky Christian voice is so small, but you need to know that the truth is that Jesus is over all of them, that they're nothing compared to him. That's something I think we need to hear. God has placed all things what, even Artemis? Yeah, absolutely. All things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Christ is everything. You are on the winning team. Not because of your great strategy or nice manners or because you're kind to sort of injured animals and small children or because you've got a really funky logo or you've got a really good strap line for your church. No, you are on the winning team because you are in Christ and he's in you. And all things are under his feet. So he, this is what he says. So Ephesians 1 is all about being in Christ. Verse 3. 
Just listen to these words. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. I mean, I have no idea what that really means, but it's true that he's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse four, this is true for you. Maybe you feel like, does God really know me? Who, who am I in God? Well, verse four says this, for he, God, chose us in him. He chose you before the creation of the world to be homeless and blameless, holy and blameless in his sight. He chose us in him. Verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. You've been redeemed from your sins. It's been paid for. Verse 11, in him we were chosen, made heirs. It's kind of like you were made heirs. You're, you've got the rights of being in the family of God. Verse 13, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit. It's like a stamp that proves who you're owned by. You're not owned by the enemy or the world, but you're, you're owned by God. If you've submitted to Christ, you've given your life to him, he's yours. You are his. And then Ephesians 2, I know it's not my chapter, but I'm going to sneak a verse from it. Ephesians 2, 22, and in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. I love that. So Paul's right into this church. They probably feel a bit tired. They feel a bit broken. Many of them maybe feel a bit like, oh. And he's saying, you too, you guys who are here, the remnant, the few of you that feel you're there, you are being built together, Jew and Gentile. It doesn't matter what your background is. doesn't matter how much you know, where you've come from. If you've given your hearts to Jesus, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And remember, that's the spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. So don't underestimate how much power you've got in this big city. You've got dunamis power inside you. It's the power of Jesus. And I think as he writes this letter, he's remembering back to Acts 19, to some of the miracles that he saw there. And to the burning of those books, 137 years worth of wages going up in smoke. He's remembering what God did in that city. But he knows the ongoing challenges that the church there faced. The church faces in Ephesus, faced in Ephesus the battles, the opposition, the spiritual warfare, the persecution, the financial challenges, all the things they would have faced. But he knows the power of the gospel to bring light and transformation. And I think he deeply cares for his flock. You know, in the way that every apostle, every pastor, every leader should care for the church. It's not about the reputation. It's not about getting a name for yourselves. It's not about stature or title or it's about love for the people that God's put you amongst the family and he knows they feel weak and probably insignificant and he knows they're really vulnerable and he knows that they're standing out from the crowd because everyone around them is going one way which is kind of to hell with all the idols and the sexuality and the debauchery and the kind of drunkenness and the, the wealth trying to stuff their lives with all of the stuff. And he knows that these little few Christians are trying to go the other way back upstream and it's really, really hard. And his heart's moved. And so he says in verse 15, I've not stopped praying, not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. You know, he could pray for all sorts of prayers, couldn't he? He could pray for protection or boldness or safety or strength to persevere this is what he prays verse 17 this is the most important prayer the most precious thing he can give to them his deepest prayer for his family in Ephesus he says I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the glorious father 
may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so you may know him better. It's a really simple prayer, isn't it? I want you to know God. I want you to know the Father. I want you to really know him, not to know about him, but to know him personally, intimately, to really know his power, to really know how much he loves you, to really know that he's going to hold you when everything seems against you. Verse 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you. Do you know he's called you to hope? He hasn't called you to a future that sucks. He hasn't called you to desolation or loneliness. He hasn't called you to kind of fade out into the sunset and obscurity. He's called, called you to blaze and to kind of rage for his kingdom and to fight and to win and to be victorious to hope he's called you to hope that your art that the eyes of your heart because it's not up here it's down here that we need to have hope isn't it that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened that Jesus' light would shine in and with it a hope would rise the hope to which he's called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in the holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. I mean, I have to be honest, I don't always feel lots of incomparable power, (laughs) but sometimes I do. And when I do, I feel like I could smash anything. I mean, in a good way. (laughs) Because when Christ powers in us, you know, we do become like Paul, and you might think, well, it's all right for Paul, but you know, he was a super apostle. But I've seen some of the most faithful, gentle, you know, unassuming men and women of God do outrageous things for the kingdom when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. The most timid, quiet, when God's Spirit comes on them, they begin to roar and they begin to burn with Jesus' light and love. And Paul's saying to the church there, you're not nothing, you're not weak, you're not insignificant, you're glorious, you're radiant. And the whole point of today is he's writing to you. And Paul's saying exactly the same thing to you. No matter who you are, no matter how weak you feel, no matter how this culture that you're part of just feels so alien to who you are and sometimes you just, you feel like your voice is so small and so reedy and weedy. And Jesus says, it's okay, I can roar on you and for you. He prays that you may know him better. I guess that's my prayer, that we may know him better. To be a church like the church in Ephesus that boldly committed to sharing the truth, even sometimes under real challenge and persecution. And I dare to believe that that can happen in our city, that our city can be transformed. I want to see little crosses like this, not actually, because that's graffiti, inscribed across the businesses in our city, over the RUH, over the places where homeless people sleep, because they begin to become places where the light of Jesus begins to bring transformation and hope. That we as Christians begin to bring light into those places, and places begin to get transformed, and the idols of our age begin to get pulled down, so that people go, was there a temple there once? I can't remember. Because it just becomes nothing and it's replaced with the beauty of the kingdom of heaven. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I've often said this quote, but I love it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was um, 
a German Lutheran pastor and theologian during the war, and he resisted the German kind of the Nazi uh, movement and ended up losing his life. But he was an amazing man. But he said this, the church is nothing but a section of humanity in which Christ has really taken form. Church isn't an institution. It's not a building. It's not a club. It's, you know, it's, it's just a bunch of people where Jesus begins to burn inside them. And when people look at them, they see Jesus. That's what happened in Ephesus. A church begun as a bunch of people. Christ began to take form in their hearts. So I want to pray for us. And um, I'm just going to finish, I guess, with some worship for two or three minutes. Let's close our eyes. I don't think I can pray better than Paul. So I'm just going to pray his prayer. It's a prayer that I pray for myself and I pray for us. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Father, every single person in this room has a call and a destiny on their lives. Lord, you've ordained the days for them in your book. Lord, you know the challenges they face now and you know the challenges that they will face. But your grace is sufficient and your, you know, your strength is made perfect in our weakness. So we yield our hearts to you and we pray, Lord, that we would truly know what it is to be in Christ. And as we gaze on him, that we would encounter him afresh. And I pray for us for a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit, Lord, so that these aren't just words, but the Holy Spirit, as, as was said there, you would be the seal that seals the work and the truth of Jesus into our hearts, that hope would rise, that faith would rise, that we dare to believe for the miraculous in these days, that the culture, the prevailing culture in our city and our nation could be changed by Christians who dare to believe that the kingdom of God is advancing. And that prayer makes a difference. And that our voice makes a difference. Lord, thank you that you chose us. That in you we know adoption as sons and daughters. That we're heirs with Christ. That we have hope. And that the same power that rose Christ from the dead is in us and available to us. So Lord Jesus, more of you, more of your spirit. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.